Hello, and welcome to Partial Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falconer, and today I'm joined by Jody Daniels, founder and CEO of Red Clover Advisors, and Justin Daniels, legal and corporate counsel at Baker Donaldson. And we'll be talking about what everyone building a new product or investing in new technology should know when it comes to privacy and security. Jody and Justin, welcome to the show. Well, hi, we're glad to be here. What she said. <laughs> yes, thanks for being here. Uh, now, I I, uh, I mean this in the least uh, creepy way possible, which probably no creepy statement has ever, uh, non-creepy statement has ever started with. But Jody, I feel in many ways like I know you. Uh, I've been following your posts online forever. And of course, you, you know, your podcast. Why don't we start by having you introduce yourself, though, to the rest of the, the, the folks that are listening. You know, who are you? What do you do? And how did you get to where you are today? Sure. Well, so hi, I'm Jody, And Red Clover Advisors is a data privacy consulting company. And what we're all about is really the operational side of privacy. We're helping companies figure out what does this suite of privacy law mean, what requirements are there, and then how do you actually get all the tactical things on that long privacy list done. So we're, we're the ones in the trenches doing data inventories and policies and procedures and understanding what's actually happening in that marketing suite of yours. And I got to privacy a while ago. It's kind of hard to believe how long I've been in the privacy space because long time ago, I built a targeted ad network and stalked you for cars at autotrader.com before Facebook did. And then that led one thing to another and found my way to privacy. And I had a whole prior career in accounting and finance and strategy. That is my story. Amazing. Yes. I, I, I think the operationalizing piece that you're focused on will come in very handy for our conversation today. And uh, Justin, let's have you go, uh, you know, save questions. Who are you? What do you do? And how did you get to where you are today? So I happen to be Jody husband, uh, Jody Daniels' husband. Why that's are you laughing? Of, that's one of my hats. Uh, my hat is <laughs> is that funny? I, I think it is. Apparently. Okay. But my hat for this conversation is... Uh, I am a corporate M&A and tech transaction attorney. So I help technology companies with their bottom line. I help them grow it by supporting them with M&A activity. I also help them protect it in particular with advising them on both data privacy and cybersecurity. So think about taking what Jody does and then from the legal perspective, looking at the overall deployment of the technology with the commercial terms, but also how does privacy and security play in my customer contracts, handling a data breach or my M&A activity? Because now privacy and cybersecurity overlay every industry and most aspects of your business. Because guess what? We're all in the data business, whether we realize it or not. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think you're the, the first uh, husband and wife uh, guest that we've had on the show. So, you know, we're breaking, breaking new ground today. Well, you know, we like to uh, be the change agent. So <laughs> here we are. Yes. Awesome. So I want to talk about, you know, sort of building new products, investing in new technologies and what the operators of those businesses should be thinking about from the start when it comes to, you know, privacy and security. So, you know, maybe the, a good place to, to jump things off is from your, your point of view, what do you think are some of the biggest, you know, mistakes and oversights people make when it comes to, you know, building new products when it comes to the the privacy and security world? Would you like to go first, Mr. Justin? Thank you, Miss Jody. 
I think where I would start is give you a story. So I had a, a client uh, come to me, a European client looking to come into the U.S. market with a fintech product. Think about a product where if you want to upload all of your assets to a place so that your financial advisor can see your portfolio and understand how to advise you. And so you can imagine financial data, very, very sensitive. And I remember in going through the process with them and I get on the phone with the IT folks and I'm like, what's our objection to making sure that all of our users have to use multi-factor authentication? And they're hemming and hawing on the call because they're like, well, we really want to make this tool as easy to use as possible. We need more customers to adopt it and use it. And even to have them step away for 30 seconds to get this code seemed to be too much. And I bring that story up because to me, the biggest issue is, particularly with technology products, is everybody's got to, we got to get to market. We've got to be first. I've seen it in the crypto industry. I've seen it with... Um, times vehicles and drones. And so in order to get there, we don't want to be inconvenienced with these things like privacy and security. We'll figure it out when it comes up. And so when you start from that standpoint, when you don't even have privacy or cybersecurity by design, which Jody can talk ad nauseum about, you've already put your company in a position with a culture that says, it's product, it's get the customer, everything else is an afterthought. And you see in the news with the privacy fines and more importantly, a lot of the cyber breaches, why they're so prevalent, because it starts with a perspective that, hey, I, I want to get to market and customer convenience and adoption is the main consideration. And this privacy and security stuff, it's just inconvenient. Let's not worry about it until we're a big enough company where we're on somebody's radar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, you, you bring up this point about how there's this perception of, uh, you know, privacy and security being an inconvenience, but it's a major inconvenience both for your, your customers as well as your business. If you get to a point where you end up in a compromised position of having a data breach and having your customer information like available to everyone, that, that's an inconvenience, uh, probably more so than uh, having to do uh you know, multi-factor authentication for, for logging into a into whatever product that you're building. Uh, couldn't agree more, Jody. What do you think? Oh, I have all kinds of thoughts, but I'm going to let you have that one, and I'll take the next one. Okay. Uh, I guess, Sean, the best way to uh, think about this is we all know that we can, if we eat better and, and exercise more, uh, we'll be healthier. But just because we know that's what we should do doesn't mean people will do it. And I think the way that infuses our conversation is, look what you're now seeing when it comes to how policy is evolving. Congress is in a deadlock. Who knows when they'll do anything? So what's happened now? We now have 12 state privacy laws. You also have GDPR. And so now you're seeing that through regulation, Privacy in particular is really coming to the forefront where governments are saying, hey, wait a second, we need to rethink this. And because companies, if you just leave them to their own devices, it's inconvenient. It doesn't help sales. They don't do it. So what's the response been? We have all these state laws. The challenge is going to be, do we really want to have 50 state laws? Think about the cost of compliance as opposed to having a federal type law like GDPR. So 
there's good parts, but there's also a hidden cost to it. And I think we're going to pay the price for congressional abdication of their roles to kind of put uh, legal guardrails around our digital 21st century economy. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there, even though, um, you know, companies obviously are going to respond if, you know, there's essentially regulations that say they have to do certain things. But do you think that the landscape's changing a little bit over the last, you know, five to 10 years where companies do see this as more of a priority? Or do you think that they're still, you know, focusing primarily on like, how do I get the market as fast as possible and still seeing some of these things as essentially, you know, a limitation of innovation? So from my perspective, um, I think we're doing better because regulations are requiring that companies do better. You're also seeing market forces at place. Like if you want to get cybersecurity insurance on average, even if you qualify, that premium is going up 79% and they require you to put in all types of cybersecurity processes and tools to even get the insurance. But having said that, I think we still have what I call a credibility gap. I think a lot of business people, when you talk to them, Yes, cybersecurity and privacy are important. We need to do it. But when it comes time to devote the resources and the time to it, I think that there remains a gap. And just to give you a great example, uh, blockchain was the latest uh, sexiest girl in the technology room. And look what happened in that industry with all kinds of data breaches because it was a rush to market. I don't want to worry about cybersecurity. And my fear is to bring this forward, we're going to have a whole repeat of that from a privacy and security perspective in the U.S. because we don't have laws in place to deal with AI. It'll just be another big land grab. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I definitely want to touch on that. So, in terms of um, you know, if I, if I am a you know business operator or business leader, that where you know either I'm in a regulated industry, so I need to prioritize this stuff, or you know I understand like this is important. I want to. Differentiate my product offering. Uh, I also, you know, believe is you know privacy is a fundamental human right. I want to do right by my customer. What are the types of questions that I should be asking myself when I'm designing that new product when it comes to essentially you know privacy and, and data protection and security? The very first question I would start with is our favorite hashtag: Know your data, which is what kind of data are you collecting? Then how will it be used? Where will it be stored and who will it be shared with? Because you can't even figure out the privacy issues if you don't understand really that data flow. And I might collect seemingly perfectly okay data. Maybe it's just name and email. But maybe if I'm going to be using that data and connecting it to all kinds of other sensitive data points that I already had, well, now that's a different use case. Where am I storing it? Who, who's this vendor? Is it an existing vendor or a new vendor? If it's a new vendor, well, that opens up a who are these people? And you want to go through the entire vendor assessment process. From a sharing perspective, then you start asking, well, who's this other side and what will they be doing with that information? The, the favorite phrase that we have really one day we're going to work on our t-shirts is know your data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. That's that's one that I've heard. Uh, well, I, I I myself make from time to time, but uh, I've heard other people talk about it as well. It's like you know, if you're a business and you don't know you know what essentially where you're storing information, like how can you possibly know that what your your privacy posture is? Uh, how do you know whether it's secure? Or how do you know you're compliant if you don't even know where it is to begin with? 
Right. And the follow-on piece to that is then you can dive into, well, depending on the kind of data, if it's sensitive data, maybe you have to consider certain, certain laws. You might have, um, you know, obligations like is it opt-in, is it opt-out. You also then have notice and you can start to move to disclosure. Well, what am I collecting and what am I doing with this information? Do I already have that in my privacy notice? Do I need to have an update that might happen? And the other piece that I think is newer and companies aren't quite yet there is thinking about individual rights while creating the product. Basically, you have to be able to potentially unwind what it is that the consumer is share or whatever uh, data is going to be processed in that equation. And so if all that data is collected, it's stored in whatever systems, it's shared with whomever, you have to remember that depending on how it was used, I might have a right to opt out, to delete, to access, and how capable is that going to be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a big technology challenge for a lot of companies. Uh, again, going back to this problem of, you know, if they don't know where it is, or it's essentially in thousands of different locations, and you have to uh, comply with the user request to delete it, then that becomes a, a huge burden to the business to go and track down all those locations to actually remove the information. That's right. So when we start to talk about things like operationalizing privacy by design, you know, what are some of the like core principles and best practices that someone needs to think through to actually operate or operationalize those principles and apply them to new products? Want me to go or you want to go? Oh, I think that's a tailor-made Jody Daniels Oh, question. a tailor-made Jody Daniels question. Okay. Well, a little bit uh, piggybacking what we just talked about. So thinking about uh, uh, transparency. What, what are we doing with that information and how have we disclosed that? Data minimization. What are we actually collecting and do we really need to collect all of what we want to, uh, what we need to be doing? What's the least amount that we can be doing? Thinking about the business purpose, you know, and who does that really benefit? Is it going to benefit me, the individual, or just the company? And we want to be able to strike a balance with those. And if you were, you know, to look at any of your typical privacy frameworks, we want to be mindful of all of those different principles. But in my mind, those are going to be some of the, you know, the biggest ones there. And of, of course, we want to be mindful of, of security and ensuring that whatever type of data is being collected and stored, it's being adequately protected. Mm -hmm. I see. And then when it comes to, essentially data minimization. Like I think one of the struggles that companies have is uh, early on, they think like, we, we just need to collect everything essentially. Like, you know, we don't know what we're gonna do with this, but if we can collect it, it could be potentially valuable. So, you know, what is sort of your advice for sort of, you know, like balancing this desire for having the data just in case versus uh, essentially minimizing the amount of data you're collecting based on, you know, where your requirements are today? So what I would say is if you're a business person, you need to think data for most companies is your greatest asset. However, the collection or vacuuming up of all data everywhere is potentially also your greatest liability. You're seeing companies like Clearview AI who vacuumed the internet for uh, faces and whatnot coming under fire. So the more data that you put on your network, as we talked about, let's say you don't know where it is. And it's data that you don't do any use anymore, but it's got the, the PI of Sean, Jody, and Justin. And that gets uh, 
accessed or exfiltrated by a threat actor and you're not even using it. Well, guess what? You now have potential liability and breach notification. Who knows if you're getting a visit from your uh, attorney general. So you kind of have to think of your data as a double hinged sword. And I guess a great way to think about this, you know, Jody talked about um, and you did about data minimization. So I worked on a project. Um, I have a smart city client. So think about the cameras that you're seeing that are starting to go up in public right of ways for safety, uh, for active shooter environments. Cameras are a great way to know about your environment. But at the same time, as we all know, video is really highly sensitive data. Video has changed the course of uh, wars in Vietnam. It has led to convictions of people. But let's say, for example, you just want to have a traffic count of people coming in a grocery store so you can better manage your um, local roads and whatnot. Well, the question is, well, a camera would do the job great. It'll count the cars. But maybe instead we can use LIDAR, which is a laser beam that counts the cars just the same, but it doesn't know that that's Sean or Jody in, in the car. And that's where companies who think about this a little more, bring in a cross-functional team because privacy and security, as I like to say, are the peanut butter and jelly of the technology industry. They're not the same, but they go together really well. And in order to flesh out some of these issues to figure out why we don't want to collect all this data or how is the best way to go about something, it really requires a team effort with people bringing different perspectives. Because if you just rely on your developer, they have one perspective, but they may not bring the perspective you, I, or Jody has. And to really get a holistic approach to how you want to handle building a product, but yet having privacy and security in mind, you need that broader collaborative team oriented approach. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that, that, that uh, example of, uh, you know, solving essentially the use case of counting cars using video versus laser is a really good uh, example of how a lot of times what we think we, or what the, you know, the potential answer is, um, to solving a problem isn't there's other you know essentially uh, um, technology innovations that allow us to solve that problem where it really comes down to like the types of things that we want to understand is an assertion on the data not necessarily having to actually run like analytics directly against the you know plain text data that like exposes our systems to, to the risk so I think taking a step back and looking at you know what is the actual problem that we're trying to solve like there was a time and technology where it was very common for engineers to have full essentially SSH access to production servers. But when you look at why that was the case, essentially they thought they needed that because they needed to access log files on those systems. And it's like, well, the problem they're actually trying to solve is like, how do I get log files from production servers? They don't need actual administrative access to those servers in order to accomplish that. So there's other ways to essentially solve that problem, like the example that you gave of, you know, essentially counting cars with a laser versus using video, which video comes with all these additional uh, potential liability around the collection of that data. Because here's the thing, Sean, and I think this is a great question for Jody, is you get into nuances. Like I was talking to Jody the other day and she brought up a really good point. You should tell the story, Jody, about how a company could collect data and an employee is using it for one purpose that might be in your privacy notice, but then there's another department, say marketing or someone who's using it for a different purpose, which isn't part of your privacy notice and is creating liability. And this is really stemming from a lack of awareness. I'm, Jody, I'd love for you to elaborate. It's a really great point. that You, well, you uh, just told the story. Though. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I think the 
if you were to envision I'm collecting a data point, and so I have a form, I collect that data point, it goes into a database, a system, the team is using it. Well, now another team might have access to the same data point. If team B goes and uses that data point and there's no communication, the way they're using it might not align with what I was told when I first gave it to you. It might not match up with the privacy notice. And so now I'm you have two use cases, but that wasn't supposed to happen. And there's a variety of questions you can ask, you know, who has access to that data? How can it get used? What kind of approvals are in place? But uh, that is a real scenario that has actually happened. And the idea of really having good communication and review when new data uses is going to happen, some type of data strategy conversation can help avoid some of those. And also only collecting the data that you really need right now. So Sean, to your question of, well, how do you balance I really, really want it in the future. I might have to have it. I like to try and bring companies back to what does the consumer or the customer, because it could be B2B as well, what's their end expectation of the data that you're asking for? A lot of time, and my favorite example, and this might not apply to all, but it does help people understand anyone listening ever not given accurate information when you've been asked what's your income, family, age range, anything like that. My guess is everyone listening says, yes, that was me. We didn't answer it accurately because we didn't feel like we needed to give that information, but you were forced to to get passed on the form. The same is kind of true. If you collect more than what the end user is comfortable giving, you might not even get accurate data at all, which sort of defeats the entire point. And Justin's already emphasized every single time you collect a data point and it's replicated that increases your security exposure. Hey there, Sean, host of Partially Redacted. You probably guessed that since at this point in the interview, you probably recognize my voice. I've been told for years that I have a face for podcasting, but no one has mentioned whether I have a voice for podcasting, so sorry about that. Hopefully, the awesome guest makes up for it. Anyway, if you're enjoying this episode, please support the show by subscribing and telling your friends. You can also join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com slash community. Okay, that's enough for me. Back to the show. Yeah, I think what you said there about, you know, these these companies that ask for this additional information, we counter that all the time. And it does feel very strange. Like, why does this, you know, app, you know uh, application that I'm going to be using need to know what my family's yearly income is when it has nothing to do with the financials of my, of myself. Or even when I moved from Canada to the United States, I, I found it very uh, surprising how many businesses needed to know my social security number. And I was like, you know, because in Canada, the only, we don't have a social security number, we have a social insurance number, but the only time we communicate that is essentially with taxes and uh, employment records. Uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever had a non-government entity ask me for my social insurance number yet. It's been sort of co-opted in the United States as like a, a, a way of having a unique ID for users in, in some contexts, uh, which, you know, overloads essentially something that was not designed it was not designed for and causes uh, you know a variety of different problems so i think i think that's a really good point and uh, i think it's really uh important as a business to be thinking about do we actually need these things and is this something that like our customers or our potential customers or users are even comfortable giving up because it doesn't make sense for essentially the thing that they're signing up for you know i'd encourage all the listeners is the next time you go to the doctor or somewhere and they ask you for the social security number leave it blank and they're like, hey, you need to fill this in and ask the simple question of, 
why and hear what they have to say. Because most people say, oh, it's just the form. You have to do that. And then it's like, well, wait a second. This is some really sensitive information. Why do you need it? Because that may start to get people to think differently about data. Like another story I have is Jody and I were together at a outdoor mall and I was watching a family, a, a guy, his younger daughter and wife, they were looking at one of these digital kiosks and you can take a selfie and you know, it'll let you digitally wear a funny hat or whatever. But if you want a picture of yourself, if you want the picture, you have to give the kiosk your cell phone. There was no privacy policy. You have no idea how they're using that data. And your cell phone is a pretty personal piece of data. And my point is, is it's almost like people need to educate themselves about, you know, I don't just give out my social security number to anyone. I, I don't just give out my phone number, but more people have to think about, hey, maybe I need to be careful about how I'm locking my digital doors or who I'm giving out my digital footprint to. And I don't know that as a society, we're there yet. We're so used to the convenience of getting the free product or service, not realizing that all they want to do to give you the restaurant receipt and ask for your email. So what? They can market to you. And that's, I think, where we have to have a shift. And we're starting to see it, but more of a shift in how people think about their digital life and how important it is. And it's really an embodiment of, of who you are, no different than um, your patient record. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Consumers have a lot of power in the dynamics of what businesses essentially can get away with. Like if consumers demand more from a privacy perspective from businesses, then businesses will have to respond essentially to that thing. And that actually will probably have even more impact than, you know, waiting around for certain, you know, regulations to essentially pass. So we talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, businesses historically see some of these things as, as inconveniences. Like if I'm adding additional security controls, I'm adding additional privacy controls, I'm adding friction to the process of someone using my product. You know, how does, how can a company essentially, essentially balance this so that, or, or create a culture where these things don't feel like inefficiencies? These feel like either the right thing to do, or is there essentially technology that we can leverage as a business that, still allows us to create like a great user experience, but uh, 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 still uh, is putting the right sort of privacy and security controls in place. I think education is really important. The privacy work that people are doing is not something that privacy people or legal team can do all by themselves. They have to involve the product teams, the marketing teams, the engineering team, all these other teams. And those other people aren't living, breathing privacy the same way that privacy people are. I mean, maybe they are, but likely not. And as a result, we need to explain why is this important to the end goal that we're all here to achieve? Well, one, we all want our jobs. This is a company. And this is either we risk fines, we risk loss of sales. Our customers are demanding this. This is very true in B2B organizations where customer A won't hire said company unless they comply. So you might not even get the sale. But trying to under, get those teams to understand the why, I think then helps make the long list of questions or short list of questions a number of meetings and conversations on the topic easier. The other piece is I think many times people think as privacy is this afterthought. Anytime there's a project, no one ever says or forgets to ask how much it costs. No one forgets to say how many people are involved. And nowadays, no one really seems to forget what kind of technology. The privacy piece is getting there. It's taking some time. And 
maybe there's one project or a slice of the company that you can work with to help them understand from start to finish, here's how we are part of your process. Get an easy win, and then you can kind of start sharing that win with other parts of the company. But what we see successful and what I used to do inside of a company is we would have our list of questions and try and get as early as possible and on any of the projects. And we would meet regularly with product teams, with marketing teams. Hey, what are you working on? No agenda, just, just let's understand what's happening. And then they would talk and I'd, we would be able to say, oh, well, you should think about X, Y, and Z. And then you can start to really try and formalize it. But the education piece is a essential item to help get team members to understand and buy in. <clears throat> so besides the education piece, like how do you start to incorporate privacy as part of sort of the product lifecycle? You, you know, you mentioned this, this example earlier where, you know, maybe there's a collection of someone's email um, and essentially the privacy policy is designed in a certain way that, that says it's going to be used um, for certain types of use cases, but then the marketing team gets a hold of it and they start using it in a different way. And essentially they did that. Maybe they didn't necessarily do that uh, intentionally, maliciously, but essentially they, they weren't aware of what the original agreements are. Like, how do you kind of like fix that problem from a design perspective? In my opinion, there's a few different sides. You're going to have potentially really large-scale projects. And most large-scale projects in larger companies tend to have some type of a PMO, a project management office, or a business requirements document, something that's going to capture everything you ever wanted to know about said new project or initiative. And that's where the finance and legal and IT and people and all those resources and exactly what this new idea is going to capture, that's an area where privacy can be embedded right there, is in that process and document. And that's part of the product life cycle. Oftentimes it's an initial kickoff, here's the product, everyone gets to have their opinion and concerns shared, then the teams go to each one of those groups. Then when there's a, a prototype or a first version, they review and there's multiple review cycles throughout the, the project. And then also, depending on the kind of use cases, you might have privacy impact assessments or you might have different approval mechanisms that might be able to come into play. Some privacy impact assessments are old-fashioned manual on Word and Excel. Others have some tools. There is technology out there to be able to kick off privacy impact assessments. And what I see is sometimes there's a really short version. It could be 10 questions, really easy to answer. Here's what it is that we're going to be doing. And if you answer any of those that might have little extra privacy risks or other risks, this is a great place to capture other risk as well, then it kicks off a deeper dive, either by privacy or again, other areas that might find this process helpful too. And then you can kind of carry on from that perspective. So privacy impact assessments don't have to only be the long, tedious version that laws require. A shorter threshold version is a great place to be able to understand the who, what, where, when, why of projects. Mm -hmm. And Justin, do you have anything to add to that? I think from my perspective, talking about uh, from a security that we haven't touched on as much is the balance is important because if all this culminates in a, in a data breach, a data breach lays bare everything you didn't do right from a privacy program because when I've handled those matters, 
it never ceases to amaze me where PI or data comes up where the company didn't know about, didn't expect. And the truth is, a lot of the uh, personal information is what triggers the breach notification laws. So if you don't stand up a good privacy program uh, from the get-go, companies are usually going to pay for it on the back end when it culminates in a data breach when you don't know where your data is or you find data where you don't expect it that all trigger breach notification laws. And for smaller companies, that can literally uh, put them out of business and... Jody and I have seen that kind of work uh, play out again and again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've talked a lot um, about sort of this, I, I don't know if it's per pressure or essentially uh, a desire for businesses that are, you know, building new products, new innovations. You know, they want to push the go-to-market quickly. They don't always slow down to sort of ask these questions about, you know, what are they doing with data? Why are they collecting it? Uh, what are essentially the impact from a privacy and security perspective of what they're building. But now, you know, a new area that is, of course, getting a ton of interest, a ton of development is around generative AI and LMs. And with that, I think there's also a lot of privacy and security concerns. So what are some of the privacy and security challenges facing companies you know, interested in these technologies? Well, do we have 50 minutes? No, we don't. So we'll uh, boil it down. So when we talk about AI and we'll talk about uh, generative AI, you have to break it down. So number one, it needs to ingest a lot of data. It has to be trained, the algorithm that is, so that it can give you the human-like output. So kind of breaking it down for the audience. So you have a privacy concern with... Where are you collecting the data? Did you have the rights to do it? So that's one area. Then when we get into uh, the algorithm itself is, when, from a cybersecurity perspective, we're now gonna have to start worrying when it comes to AI about the integrity of data. Because if I'm a threat actor, one of the areas I might mess up the AI is, hey, let's in, let it ingest like bad information because garbage in, garbage out. And then the other thing we're going to have to be uh, thinking about is AI hallucinates. The best way I've heard AI explained in a simple way is, do you remember growing up, you played Mad Libs? There'd be a paragraph and then you could fill in where it goes and it could go to different places. Well, generative AI in a way is like Mad Libs on steroids because it's learned so much. It's like you're typing in something and it's already predicting based on its algorithm kind of where you're going to go and it creates content but sometimes it doesn't get it right. And so from my perspective, I think companies that are wading into this area, you really need to be, again, thoughtful and get a broad perspective from your developer, your privacy person, your security person, there's intellectual property issues, then how do you have your employees um, use this? Do you outright ban it? Do you let them use it for permissive purposes? So there's a lot to unpack. And when I'm working with companies to come up with kind of their internal AI policies, they're all over the board, but at least you're getting different opinions because like everything else, there's no technology nowadays that doesn't have an overlay of privacy and cybersecurity concerns. And AI is no different. And it's really an interesting contrast to see what happened to open AI in Europe when the Italian uh, 
data commissioner under GDPR said, hey, wait a second, how are you collecting this data? And they sent him a notice and they had to make changes. Well, as you know, in the US, we don't have a GDPR. And so to me, policy in, in effect shapes this. And now we're in a period of time where AI is going to be out there running amok, at least in the United States, without any real regulation around it. Yeah, and even if there is a regulation that comes about, it's probably going to take, uh, you know, it could take years before anything passes, right? So, you know, as an individual that's interested in using these types of things, like what what should I be thinking about as an individual? Or like, how do I essentially safeguard myself? Well, I think if I'm an individual using it, you want to look at the settings for, uh, I'll use ChatGPT as an example. The default setting is it's going to use whatever you query to uh, learn from because all AI needs more and more data to learn from. So uh, there was uh, Samsung, they had developers who put proprietary code into ChatGPT to say, hey, let it debug it. Well, now their proprietary code is not so proprietary anymore. Uh, another big part of it is like, for example, um, for me, if I do any kind of legal research or I type something in there, I do not solely rely on the AI. I go and fact check it other places. So there's some real common sense approaches that uh, people need to take that's not too dissimilar from what they might do with their phone and its settings. But I think the key point for the audience is you really want to be thoughtful when it comes to AI. This is not a fire ready aim type of technology. It really is one where you really need to be thoughtful about what's our use case. Given our use case, what are some of the thoughtful things we want to think about from intellectual property, privacy, security? It just cuts across so many areas. Do you see in the you know businesses or people that you're interacting with any sort of common you know misconceptions and myths surrounding privacy and security in the AI space? Well, we're in the early part of this, I guess the biggest misconception to me is, is how these companies go to market and aren't thinking that if I'm going to go scrape a bunch of information off the internet, that in some way, somehow there may not be privacy issues and I'm just going to ignore them. I think AI is probably going to make some of the same mistakes absent the regulatory environment when it comes to, as we talked about earlier in our episode, how you're not putting privacy and security at the table in the design phase. And I know the answer to that. It's because you see all the crazy money being thrown at AI projects right now. It's, hey, I want to get out in the marketplace. I want to test this. I want to get it in users' hands. So we're first to market and getting user adoption. If I put in the right privacy and security protocols, that three to six month lag in the market may determine whether I'm a first mover or I'm an also ran and I may not get funding. And so you see why the way that companies, particularly startups, get funded and how they go to market, it's just tailor-made for privacy and security to continue to be an afterthought when it comes to AI. Do you think that kind of short-term thinking, though, is going to end up like burning a lot of these businesses? Yeah, sure, maybe they get to market first, but are they going to essentially be you know the next you know Equifax in terms of having like a major breach that really damages their reputation down the road? I think there will. I, I can't predict who, but I definitely think there's going to be someone who is the uh, is the case where they've done something wrong. They've used data and pushed the limits too far. Um, that's my opinion. 
just waiting for it to happen. Well, I guess, Sean, <laughs> that could happen, but let me give you an example. So uh, we're, we're talking today, I guess, we're, we've all been on a Zoom call. And I know we make this point in our book, but think about Zoom. So when Zoom came out, Sean, do you remember, did you even need a password to log on to Zoom? Uh, I don't think so. I was at Google at the time, so I was using Meet a lot. So. <laughs> well, uh, with Zoom, you didn't need a password. So because why? Hey, we want it to be convenient, get user adoption. So, you know, the pandemic starts and Zoom becomes the latest verb in a high-flying company. So then what happens? Oh, we have Zoom bombers who then get into the Zoom meetings. And then more importantly, it comes out, Zoom has been sharing information with Facebook and they get sued under California privacy laws and other places. And they settle for about, I think it was what, $85 million. And they're like, okay, we're going to bring in the privacy and security professionals now. And my issue is at that point, it was just a cost of doing business. It didn't really impact them other than, okay, we have to spend money on this, but we already have our billion dollar valuation. And I think you're going to see a repeat of that with AI. It's just a matter of, does the company get big enough, fast enough to where it's a cost of business or does it get hit when it's not quite there and it burns to the ground? But that's an AI technology company, or maybe you mean a, tech, a company who's using AI? Because I think those can be different. Uh, I think you could have some type of AI tool that ends up being a similar type use case. They don't have the right privacy and security settings and it blows up. But I think there's going to be some, I'm going to call it regular company who is utilizing AI and pushes the limits in some, some unexpected way with consumer information and it exposes it in, in a not good for consumer outlet. Sean, <laughs> I hate to say this on the air with your listeners, but I'm forced to agree with Jody. <laughs> I don't like to do it often or admit to it, but she makes a fair point. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the uh, a lot of companies are not necessarily going to be that are going to be impacted by this aren't necessarily like the what what you would consider an AI company, but they're an existing company that's leveraging AI technologies through API integrations or you know using existing frameworks and so forth, and they need to also be thinking through these potential privacy challenges and concerns. So as we start to wrap up, do you have other, any other sort of advice for you know, business leaders, uh, people developing products, interested in investing in new technologies in the space to be thinking about when it comes to privacy and security? I know we've talked about a number of different things around you know, as a privacy professional, essentially like educating the people that are the stakeholders, companies slowing down a little bit and thinking about, you know, how are they managing this data? Where is it? Um, you know, uh, 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 what technologies are they using? How is it being interacted with and governed? Anything else that, that you want to uh, sort of remind people about? Well, I guess I'm going to go back to a famous Billy Joel song and say, it's all a matter of trust, which was the thesis of the book that Jody and I wrote called Data Reimagined. And it's, if you're a business leader and you really want to build a brand and really build a relationship with your consumers, trust is at the heart of that. I hear it all the time, you know, in our personal lives, professional lives. But when we talk about trust in the business world these days, and we're so data centric, how you treat somebody's data is now really the embodiment of how you treat them. So if I'm a business leader and I was like, why am I investing in this? I think the reason is 
Do you want to build a trusting relationship with your customers, employees, and the people that help you make your business successful? To do that in our current economy, that means caring about how you collect, use people's data, which is privacy. And then, of course, making sure that you do your best to secure it from the unauthorized access of the threat actors that are out there. And you're doing it because you want to demonstrate to your customers and the public that, hey, we do care about your privacy and want to build trust and earn it with you by how we treat your data. I would offer and add, in addition to everything that we've said, a lot of times we're going to be using technology, software, vendors, agencies, other people to help us. And we might get the first version of how it works. I would encourage people to keep pushing back. I like to use the onion analogy. We have to keep pulling all the different layers back to really understand what is happening and make sure that you have technical people on all sides to be able to make sure you're getting a, a clear understanding. And that way you're at least reviewing the risk that you might have in a, in a vendor in a way that is, is helpful. And the other is to just emphasize what Justin has said, the element of trust and going back to the why. When everyone understands the why you're doing something, whether that be for fines, for customers, for trust, for just this is our, our value, this is in the best interest of the customer, then privacy doesn't feel like this afterthought. And that takes time. That is not something that, hi, here's our mission and we're going to win it over in our first conversation. But each conversation that you have with someone in the organization, if you keep dropping these little parts, then if you're a privacy pro listening, you're going, your phone will keep ringing off the hook all the time. And if you're on the engineering side or you know a, a product person that is listening, then you know, continue to be friends with your privacy teams and understand what is here because it is a lot easier to build something in the beginning than to try and unwind it later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think you made a really good point too about how this is, in, uh, this is an ongoing effort. It's something that uh, is gonna touch sort of all areas of the business and uh, impact, you know, multiple functional areas. And it needs to be something that is an ongoing effort. And it's not something that it's not like developing a feature. You just, you know, just like, oh, we're, we're going to do a, a two week sprint on privacy and be done. Uh, it doesn't really work that way. It does not. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jody, Justin, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, I really enjoyed this. That was very fascinating. Uh, I think we touched on a lot of different uh, topics. And I will uh, link your book, uh, Data Reimagined, in the show notes and include anything else that you want to, uh, to throw in there uh, for the listeners. And it would be great to have you back sometime down the road. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. We really appreciate it. And for anyone listening, we're really active on LinkedIn. So feel free to come and find us. What she said. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you.